Welcome to this podcast hosted by Nadina Doherty and myself, Anskarellan, at the University of Sheffield School of Education. In this series of podcasts, members of the school and colleagues will be discussing their latest work and study in education. This series of thought-provoking podcasts will encourage a rethinking of taken-for-granted assumptions about the role of education in society, its mission and its effects. Have you got your coffee ready, Ansgar? I do. Okay, let's get started. On this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Payne, a lecturer within the School of Education. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, We are going to talk about your paper as well as your research interests. So how about we just start by you telling our listeners your broad research area and your research interests. Okay, um, so for those that don't know me, um, I actually started here as a a lecturer in language education on the PGC. So I was and still am interested in language and education and applied linguistics um, and a teacher of languages in schools and classrooms. And it was during that research that I came across the Slovak Roma children in a school in Sheffield that prompted me to start researching more um, in relation to the Slovak Roma um, children and the families and communities here in Sheffield and in Slovakia. Great, thank you. So you have just come back from Slovakia, haven't you? Yes. And what were you yeah. doing there? So there I was, so as part of my study, I'm sort of running a, a five-year longitudinal study, currently in year four of that study, and so that was my sort of annual trip to the east of Slovakia to visit the villages and schools where the children come from and their parents who are currently in Sheffield. They, they come predominantly from two villages and I think we'll pick up on that later. Okay, thank you. So yes, let's turn to your recent publication which is called School Life on the Margins, Slovak Roma Pupils Negotiating Education and it's been published in Race and Class. Um, and could you clarify for me and our listeners the difference between Slovak Roma and Gypsy communities because often in political discourse they're made homogenous and used interchangeably? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question to start with because actually when I was a teacher I worked with Gypsy and Traveller children mm-hmm. um, and then now that I work with so-called Gypsy Roma children from Slovakia I see they're not the same thing. So I think part of the problem is these labels that sort of tend to group sort of, you know, sort of um, heterogeneous groups uh, under one sort of umbrella term, if you like. Um, And I think it has ramifications in terms of things like policy, practice, funding, etc. But essentially we've had gypsy communities in the UK for centuries um, and Irish traveller communities... Um, generally they were sort of present as sort of white children, families um, blend into the community if you like sort of where I used to work in Cambridge for example they, you couldn't tell the difference um, whereas of course Slovak Roma pupils are um, they um, originated originally from India 800 to 1000 years ago so they are sort of darker skinned darker haired and they sort of present more as um, coming from the Indian subcontinent. And of course there's a language issues and so on and so forth. So are different, different. Great, thank you. So I was told during my PhD that you should 
give people the elevator speech, which is, you know, it only takes about up two minutes to get from the bottom floor to the top floor um, to explain your thesis argument before they start switching off. Right. So if you were to describe the main argument of your piece to our listeners in less than two minutes, what would you say? First of all, for those that haven't switched off <laughs> already. Um, so this piece, well, first of all, I was very proud to get published in Race and Class, because I think, and I, I'd urge our listeners to, to read it. Um, so in my work in schools, I um, noticed that the Roma children, no matter how hard they worked or tried to fit in or assimilate, they seemed to be in the bottom sets. And I noticed that every time I went into school, I was always visiting the bottom sets. Mm-hmm. I wonder why that was. And so I started to explore that in a bit more depth. Um, and sort of came to the overall conclusion that something is working, no matter how hard these children try, something's working against them, they can't seem to rise beyond the bottom set or maybe the next one up, mm. achieving very little academically, and a lot of other stuff that goes hand in hand with that. The more I explored, the more I found out that many had been excluded from school, coming for a better life and not necessarily getting it. Um, and that combined with my um, research you know, over in Eastern Slovakia, um, so led me to that conclusion that there is something um, whether it's um, we'll discuss this explicitly or implicitly racist acting against them, the system um, so that really is sort of the crux of this paper um, and the argument that they are you know, they are, that they are being pushed and forced and sit and sorted down yeah. into those bottom sets Great, thank you and so you took an ethnographic approach in this piece in your studies so why why an ethnographic study and what does that approach allow you to do or see? Yeah. Well, you know, whether it's ethnographic or empirical, um, you know, I just, for me, the ethnographic study, well, first of all, I, I noticed that um, a lot of people do research and they will, they will go in and they will do interviews, questionnaires, whatever, observations, mm-hmm. and come away with their data, findings, analyze, and, and, and publish a paper. I just thought to get to the real heart of the matter, I needed to engage longitudinally with the community. Um, people would say that to get people would say that their, their chances in school reflect in some ways their family backgrounds. You know, people talk about the class system, for example. So I realised I'd get to need to get to the families, the home lives, the community. Yeah. Even start to learn the language the best I could. I've been learning Slovak and, and some Roma. Um, that's not without its difficulties. And of course, then going to Eastern Slovakia to understand the villages and, and the lives of the children and the families over there. So that, for me, is an ethnographic approach. I think, it, in my case, I think it really is, um, it is about learning the language and engaging deeply and for a long time with the community. Right. Uh, you sort of alluded to some of the tensions, which is kind of my next question. And I can see that you haven't included your positionality in this piece. So as a white middle-class man who you suggest in this paper benefits from this type of education system, what were some of the issues or tensions you encountered as part of the research process? I mean, you mentioned language and trying to learn it, but yeah. any other well, issues or tensions? That's interesting as well, because and I think that's, the, the, that's what sort of alls the wheels of academia. There's another paper I now need to write to go into more depth about aspects such as my positionality and some of the good questions you ask. But what's interesting, of course, is, is that as a, as a white person, thinking about when I go to Slovakia, I look like um, a non-Roma Slovak 
person. And the Roma's dealings with the Slovak wider society are not usually positive. So a white person entering a Roma settlement um, may well be like a social worker or a, a, a lawyer or someone going in to do something or to find somebody about something not always positive. So I've had to overcome by getting to know the community and then getting to know me, overcome some of those initial barriers. And speaking a bit of the language um, helps a bit. Being able yeah. to say a greeting and say mm. please and thank you and stuff mm. helps. So that's one of the one of them. Thank you. Um, Chris Searle, who you mentioned in the piece, refers to these peoples as white gypsy Roma. Only to me, when I read your work, it seems to allude that they are not quite white and that's the problem is there truth in in my assumption and if so how so yeah so so like i've said really and i'm always trying to try tread carefully around what is in some ways a new area for me or a new way of coming at this it's my first publication for example in race and class the the roma children that, that we work with they look Indian or Pakistani. That's why they seem to fit in so well and settle in so well to a multicultural community like Sheffield. But I think Chris Sell may be um, slightly misquoting something that is to do with the county council or the government way of collecting statistical data. Okay. So you have Gypsy Roma Traveller, GRT, has been used for many, many, many years. Mm. And that, as we discussed in that initial question, really does that allow for that heterogeneous group of people that come under that umbrella? Yeah. Um, so I think that's he's, he's using some of that old terminology, if you like, or maybe they're still currently using it in some schools as well, but there is a difference. Okay. And you rightly illustrate that there's a watered-down curriculum through sifting and sorting. And for our listeners, what is that process of sifting and sorting? Yeah. So this school, I think, the one I work in is... Um, probably representative you know um, and I don't always want to try and generalize but I think people will recognize this that I mean, it looks very benign it looks um, meritocratic you, you sit an English test or a maths test and then you get put into the top middle bottom sets accordingly mm -hmm. there are four sets in this school so that's the process by which they're sorted academically um, and then the assumption is of course that, that you know as you as you do well, you can move up, or as you do poorly, you can move down, rather like football teams in a football league. But it doesn't seem to work like that, and why not? Because when you are down in the bottom set, you are being, it seems to be treated a bit differently, yeah. taught a bit differently. So the chances of, of gathering up enough momentum to move up the sets are, are slim. Right. Slimmer. Because the okay. teacher kept saying this is not proper maths. Yeah. yeah. Now there can be, you know, I'm not sort of against teachers look at the national curriculum and say, well, I think we can do something more appropriate for our kids, which is, I think we'll probably touch upon again in one of your questions. You know, so you may look at the role of pupils and think, well, okay, we've got a national curriculum. For these pupils, we could also inject some extra subjects mm. like Slovak or like maybe some non academic subjects as well or extra English. Um, but what seems to be happening is that the, the, the national curriculum is what is being taught and within that teachers are, it seems to me, being afforded some license or taking the liberty of perhaps doing a little bit less than they could or should be doing. So when they enter the school are they immediately put into the bottom set? 
Is that the problem? Yeah. Well, what actually happens with, in our schools, there is a massive issue. There shouldn't be because we're such a, a multilingual society. There's an issue what to do with children for whom English is not the first language. Yeah. And there are grades of that. Some people have got English as a second language and their English is you know, better than mine. Some have got no English whatsoever. Invariably, they're sort of treated differently. They may be taught English first before they're put into the mainstream classroom, thereby learning nothing to do with the substantive curriculum content until they've got the English, yeah. or they're put straight in the classroom and it's a bit of sink or swim. Mm. There seems to be no perfect system in the DINA. But all of that um, is sort of militates against doing well academically. Yeah. Uh, why did you describe this process of sifting and sorting as implicit institutional racism? Because as we understand it in popular culture, isn't racism supposed to be interpersonal, so that's one person to another? Yeah, well like I say, this is um, a little bit of a new area for me, and I'm treading sort of tentatively, and, and um, that is, that's an interesting question, and I was thinking you know, implicit, explicit, implicit, explicit, what does it really mean? Can implicit start to become explicit? So when I go in a school, and I broadly see the top sets full of white faces and the bottom sets full of black faces. If that's happened by some sort of benign, neutral English language testing mechanism or math testing mechanism, is that implicitly racist, explicitly racist? So half of me is a sort of answer in a way. Um, but I do see that this is, um, that there is something going on that, that um, is, is I don't, I don't know if there's a middle line between <laughs> implicit and explicit, but there's certainly something not right about this system. And you, I mean, we go on to this a little bit later about the. I'll save it. I'll save yeah. it until later. Okay. Uh, individual teachers' actions, but um, you mentioned that the brief history of migration of these communities to Sheffield and state that the character of Page Hall has changed as a result. And I'm just curious what you mean by this. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's changed. It been, it's been reported in the media. Um, Page Hall has been visited by Helen Pitt from The Guardian, John Humphreys from the Today programme, who described this grim place that's got grimmer or something, and he said that on Radio 4. Um, for sure, it's always been an area of inward migration because it's cheaper housing down there in that part of Sheffield. Um, but there was, a, you know, there, there, was, there was a lot of rubbish in the streets, seems quite a lot of overcrowding to me. The council have been trying to sort of thin out the population by invoking a licensing scheme for landlords, that sort of thing. But outwardly, it's quite interesting that there are now supermarkets with, with that the sell the so Slovak goods or the Slovak mm. supermarket, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So yeah, it has changed the character of the, of the area. Has it always been a place of migration? I, th I would think, obviously, in, in the very early days, it was yeah. um, it, the Victorian houses, you know, 100 years ago, no, that would have been some sort of still working or mining community or something. I'm not really sure of the, yeah. the, the real distant history. But, of course, when people started migrating to Sheffield, it was those areas that they migrated to. Okay, great, thank you. Um, the students seem to be heavily policed in this paper, and several times you mentioned threats looming in the air, C1, yeah. consequence one, no, is that right. what it means? Yes, yeah. um, and you say that teachers had a bad attitude towards pupils assuming they're not capable and giving up on engaging with learning. And I wonder, some might suggest that if it was a different teacher, 
they might be less willing. And so what do you think about the few bad apples argument, that it might just be a few bad apples, particularly as you talk about institutional structural racism in this paper? Yeah, I think, I think it's what's interesting, I've gone, I've gone with the data, and I think you're absolutely right. I just, I was just in school, and it was just one particular day of many, 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 many days I've been in that school, following kids around for a day, invariably the bottom set, as I've said, making my notes, and I was just struck by the sort of the interactions with the teachers, the things that were said, the way the kids were taught, and I wrote the paper on the basis of that one vignette. Within the school, there's some good practice, but what I think is good practice may not be what the school thinks is good practice. So let me just explain briefly. Um, there's a science teacher who does word maths and vocab maths, and he gets the children working on learning the, the language, i.e. the Roman children, and being confident with how to spell big scientific words before teaching them the science. Mm. Now, of course, on the other hand, you could argue, well, that's very slow, you're not going to get through the curriculum at that rate, and so on and so forth. But things that I think are good practice do go on. Yeah. There's a fantastic art teacher that really engages the kids and gets them to paint themselves in their community, that sort of thing. A geography teacher that sort of you know, takes off his tie and rolls up his sleeves and, and he really does some lovely presentations with the kids. So yes, I mean, it, it depends which day you pick for your, for your vignette, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that the system militates slowly and surely against that sort of teaching, that, that more sort of weaker internal framing that I sort of yeah. perhaps like, would, would argue for. Um, it almost legitimises their assumptions that they're deficit children. If having sifted and sorted means you can put people in bottom sets and they immediately see them as lower or less capable, yeah, yeah, yeah. it legitimises them putting them yeah. in their bottom but, but this is why the whole the, the system in the UK, this, this whole league table system, and, and going for the results, yeah. um, you could argue the school are doing the right thing. They are they are parking certain children in certain sets to sort of get through mm. in one piece, whilst putting all their energy and resources into those that will get them the results. And it is it's as stark as and depressing as that. So, if a teacher listening to this podcast was interested in embedding critical pedagogy, which is what. Uh, you sort of influenced by into their classrooms. Yeah. What would you suggest the key ideas of this approach for tackling inequalities might be? Yeah. Well, I think um, it could be lots of things, couldn't it? But I think within the s system that there is, that idea of um, every teacher being <laughs> non-racist, however, that, however you weave that out in the tease that out in an interview situation, um, engaging with the communities and kids in front of them. It's not just Roma kids in those bottom sets, by mm. the way. Um, being prepared to, to learn a bit of the language, being welcoming, being prepared to, ex to work with what the children bring with them yeah. into the classroom, their experiences, their culture, whatever that means, their community. Um, seeing it as valuable. Seeing it, yeah, seeing it as immensely valuable. And I, do, and I think it was... And of course, we do see, and the schools will see, multilingualism as valuable when a fluent French speaker comes in. Yeah. That's seen as a positive. So, for example, I, my idea for the school was that they should teach Slovak. Why Slovak? Because the children are, have Slovak ID cards, they are Slovak citizens, but they grew up learning and speaking Romani in the home, 
and Slovak is the language of the school. That's why they're all at a double disadvantage when they come here. Mm. They wanted their third language. Um, so I basically said to the school, look, if we, and I used to be a governor of the school, I said, look, if we, 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 te- we should teach the children Slovak. That will give them the language to go back with when they go back, if they, when they go back to the Slovak school system, so they're not put back a year there, because they put back a year or two in that system. Mm-hmm. It's like a Germanic system. Um, it's a Slavic language. It's uh, you know they, they 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 can then you know they can talk with people from Poland, Russia, make themselves understood. Mm. Um, and I think they would engage with it. Some of them have a smattering of Slovak. Anyway, the televisions that they watch is Slovak. It's not Romani television. But of course, this was immediately um, this was this was um, not well received because there was no GCSE in Slovak. That's an example of what yeah. I think might be a good idea, yeah. uh, but, but the structurally not being permitted. So I was about to ask you a viable way forward for that school, but <laughs> I think you've already said it. So have you been uh, back to that school since? Yes, of course. Yeah, I go back quite often, okay. and I'm going to be going back for another year at least. The idea, the idea, or rather the, the proposal, was to track these children through five years of secondary school. I started when they were in year seven, yeah. they're now in year ten. That said, of the, of the 30-something I started with, there's only about seven left of the original cohort due to migrating backwards and forwards, either back to Slovakia or within the UK, or being excluded from school. But yeah, I'll continue. Stark numbers. So that's next for you then? The next year will be to f- while they finish up their final year of Year 11 then? Yeah. And also, um, another paper I've written um, looks at the educational attainment of the ones I managed to get attainment for in our system and one village, children from one village seem to be performing better than children from another and it's all relative because no Roma are really leaving school yet with GCSEs in Sheffield that I've come across, one or two. Um, So going back to those villages I'm exploring the, the context and asking myself why the children from one particular village seem to be performing better in school than another. Mm. And it's, it's rooted in child development, yeah. and family life, and, and community life. So that's sort of part of it, Nadina. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate thank that. Thank you.